Our scripture today is found in 1 Samuel 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchizedek, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul had died, he fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, on the same day together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers through the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shon. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the villain Valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bashan. And they came to Jabeth and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Please be seated. So this morning we come to the conclusion of our study of First Samuel. Uh, and God willing, we'll uh, come back to the second half of this study, looking at Second Samuel sometime in 2022. But in the conclusion of First Samuel, we see the conclusion of Saul's life. Uh, Saul, the first king of, of Israel, the first anointed one of Israel. Now, anointed one uh, in Hebrew is Messiah. In Greek, it's Christ. And, and Saul is a type of Savior, or a, a type of Christ that ultimately points to the ultimate Christ and points to, uh, he points to Jesus. Uh, but also, in doing that, he proves what a horrible uh, Savior he turned out to be. And so we see uh, Saul uh, on, on this, this mountaintop, and uh, he, is, uh, he, he dies a bloody, violent death uh, surrounded by his enemies. And, uh, and that's where his story ends. And, uh, and, and we look at this death and we say, how is it that this is how uh, that Saul dies? Why is this the end that God orchestrated uh, for, for this man? And so in answering that question this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at, uh, back at several scenes from the life of Israel and, and, and from the life of Saul that has led up uh, to, uh, to this moment here. Um, but before I do that this morning, I want to talk uh, briefly about uh, grief. Because really at the heart of this passage is, um, it, it is grief, specifically uh, grief over our sin. We'll talk about grief for a minute, and, and, and in doing so, I'm going to talk about a different kind of, of grief. We'll talk about grief over, over tragedy. 
You know, eight days ago, we uh, honored uh, the, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And, uh, and for a lot of you uh, who, who were alive and, and were old enough, you remember that day pretty well. Um, I, I bet you, you can remember exactly where you were when you heard the news. Uh, hijackers flying planes into the towers or into the Pentagon. You, you know and you remember that day and you remember the grief of that day. Do you remember how our, our country came together in the aftermath of that? And, and the grief that sort of pulled us together as a nation. In fact, we, we experienced a unity on, on September 2nd greater than any unity we'd experienced in decades as a nation. But sadly, that unity has diminished since then. And I would say that uh, we are probably more divided in our country than we've ever been in our history. But there was a unity that once existed there, and, and we would look back on, on that date, and, and we would say we, we need to remember, uh, we, we, we need to, to, to not forget those events, we need to, to hold on to that grief to some extent so that we don't forget that. And, and, and the way that we remember is you, you go to a 9-11 memorial, uh, you read the names of the people that died in the towers or on those planes, like, you, you bring those things into the present so that you can remember them. Immediately following uh, the events of 9-11, or very close, we entered uh, in, in, into a, a war. Uh, and, and going into Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, the United States engaged in its longest armed conflict in our history. 20 years, nearly 20 years of war. And yet at the same time, for most Americans, we didn't even recognize that we were at war. Uh, because the war was so distant from us, not only across the, the, the planet from us, but it wasn't really lived out in the lives of people around us. Most Americans, not only did they not know anybody who went and, and died in combat over in Afghanistan or Iraq, but most Americans didn't even know anybody who went and served there. The war was so distant from us, it was disconnected from us. We lived most of our days like there wasn't even a war going on. We, we look at, at, at our, 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 our leaving Afghanistan, and our withdrawal over a month ago now, and at first, we really grieved that. We, we saw it all over the news. We saw what was beginning to happen to, to, to that country. And like almost overnight, everything that was accomplished over the last 20 years just evaporated. But have you noticed that it's less and less in the news cycle? It's less and less in front of our eyes. We're beginning to move on. We're beginning to go forward. The conclusion I, I want us to, to draw from this this morning is grief is proportionate to love. And here's what I mean by that. If you knew somebody in those towers, if you knew somebody who was on that plane, if you knew somebody who was in the Pentagon, if you, if you loved that person, then the grief that you would experience even to this day would be exponentially greater than those of us who didn't. Like if you knew a soldier or a sailor or a Marine or, 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 or an airman who, who went to Af Iraq and Afghanistan and didn't come back, or they came back but they came back different, if you loved that individual, then your grief over that war would be exponentially greater than most of us experience. If you knew an Afghan family, if you knew a woman who was living in Afghanistan or is living in Afghanistan now, you knew the plight that, that, that faced her and the future that awaited her, you, if you loved this person, you would grieve over that exponentially greater than the fact that, that there are so many faceless individuals to us living in that country. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, the grief is directly proportionate to love. 
The more that you, you love someone who experiences tragedy, the more that you're able to grieve with them. And see, the, the, when it comes to our sin, when it comes to the one that we've sinned against, grief is also proportionate to our love for that one. We're gonna dive into that a little bit more this morning. But before we get going, I wanna stop and uh, I wanna pray. And as we do, I, I wanna pray the words of Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 over us. Heavenly Father, search us. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in us. And lead us in the way everlasting. Father, I pray that uh, this morning um, your spirit would bring to mind the ways that we have sinned against you. Help us to realize how much you've loved us and how much we've offended you. And I pray that out of that we would grieve, but that grief would lead to repentance. Father, I pray that even now, our words, our actions, our motives, our sins of omission and sins of commission leveled against you, that you would bring those things to our hearts and our minds so that we deal with them this morning. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So to pick up where we left off last week, um, we, uh, we were looking at the last five chapters of, of 1 Samuel. And um, we were specifically sort of looking at the life of David. We looked at David last week and, and the way that Saul finishes the story. We're gonna look at that this week. But we're looking at that uh, through the lens of uh, uh, 1 Samuel 2. Uh, at, at the beginning of 1 Samuel 2, we see this, this song of, of Hannah. And Hannah, uh, the, the mother of, of Samuel, she, she writes this. And, and, and there's two messages that we see in this song of Hannah. The first is a message of hope. And she says this, The Lord raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. This is a song of hope that, that God reaches down and for the poor and for the powerless and for the broken and for the needy, for, if you're on the dust pile, good news, the Lord sees you and knows you and, and, and exalts you as he did David or can. There's a message of hope, but there's also a message of warning here. As she says this, the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. She who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and he brings down to Sheol. The Lord makes poor. He brings low. The wicked shall be cut off. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken. The Lord will judge the ends of it. Like, do you see the words of warning that are there? That God opposes the proud. That if you are proud and, and haughty and, and arrogant, know that, that there is a God who sees and who weighs the heart. There is a, as a warning here to turn and to repent. And so last week as we looked at, uh, at this, this song, the lens of this song at, at David, this week we're gonna look at the lens of this song at, at Saul. And, uh, and we're gonna look back at, at, at different scenes from the book of Samuel that we've kind of covered in this series and just be reminded of, of, of how uh, Saul gets to where he gets, how he gets to that point where he's dying a bloody, violent death surrounded by his enemies on top of a mountain. So the first scene that I kind of want to remind you of uh, this morning, it comes from uh, 1 Samuel 8. 
Um, This is before Saul is installed as king. The leaders of Israel, they go to Samuel and they say, we want you to give us a king like the nations around us have. And Samuel understood what it is that they were asking for and so did God. God said, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me from being king over them. You see, God, he, 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 held a, he had a theocracy. Israel was meant to be a theocracy. He was meant to be ruled uh, over by God. The people were supposed to be connected in, to him and, and he was supposed to reign and rule over them. But they were rejecting him as king. Furthermore, they were rejecting their own identity. They were God's people. And they didn't want to be known as God's people. They wanted to be like the nations around them. They were rejecting their own identity. And so God says, okay, I'm gonna give you a king after your own heart. But I wanna warn you about what this king is gonna be like. And through Samuel, he says this to these people, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. And essentially he says uh, through these eight verses, he will take, 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 and he will take seven times. They're told that this king is going to take from them until at last you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Keep this in the back of your mind as, as we, we go back, we look upon this. So upon hearing this, the leaders of Israel say, so be it. Even though they're confronted in, in the fact that this is a sin to ask for a human king to replace God as king, to look elsewhere is, is rebellion, it's, it's disobedience against God. And, and, and Samuel's confronting them. Even though he confronts them, they still say, whatever, give us a king. So God gives them a king after their own heart. In 1 Samuel 10, Saul is anointed. Saul becomes king. And, uh, and, and what we notice right off the bat is that God, in fact, loves Saul. When we look at Saul's story and how it is that he became king, we see that, that, that God reaches into Saul's story and he actually redeems Saul's past. He redeems his family of origin. And over and over again, he, he tells Saul how much that he wants to be with him. He puts his, his spirit upon him. And he shows him over and over again, he's going to be with Saul. God loved Saul, but Saul did not love God. Saul loved the opinion and the approval of others. And ultimately, Saul loved Saul so that in chapter 13 we see that uh, he's, he's uh, amassing the Israeli army against the Philistines and uh, his ragtag group of, of troops are looking around at the might of the Philistines and they begin to desert and there's, there's a, a, an allotted time, an appointed time where Samuel is supposed to come and offer a burnt offering offering a sacrifice to God before the battle and the time comes and it goes and Samuel doesn't show up and so Saul steps out of his role as king and he steps into the role of priest and he, and he does something he was not supposed to do and he offers the sacrifice instead all because he's worried about his people deserting he's trying to hold on to them well when Samuel shows up he says this, you have not kept the commandment, uh, command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. He's given the, Israelis, the Israelites the king after their own heart, but that king has failed and has, has rebelled and disobeyed God, and so God is going to appoint a king after his own heart eventually. Saul actually says nothing in response to this. We don't see anything that he says. No, uh, no confession, no, um, uh, no I'm sorry, no forgive me, I was wrong. There is absolutely no repentance for this. Then we get into chapter 15, 
And God has, has commanded Saul to go and, and fight against the Amalekites and to utterly blot them out, including their livestock. And so Saul partially obeys. He goes into battle and he destroys many of the lives of the people, but he holds on to the king as a trophy for himself and he holds on to the livestock. And God tells Samuel what he's done. And so Samuel goes and he, he confronts Saul. And Saul says to himself, well, I, I totally obeyed God. I did what God commanded him to do. And, and Samuel says, wait, why, why do I hear all these animals? Oh, that's a sacrifice. I'm gonna honor God by sacrificing all of these animals to him. That wasn't the truth. He was gonna honor himself by offering all these animals as a sacrifice. He was, he was about glorifying himself. In the midst of all this, he erects a monument to himself. Samuel wasn't about the glory of God. He was about the glory of, of or I'm sorry, Saul wasn't about the glory of God. Saul was about the glory of Saul. Saul didn't love God. Saul loved himself. And so this is what Samuel says to him. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And then he says this. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. I want you to understand what, what, what Samuel is saying here is that your disobedience to God is the, the, the same as turning to Satan. Your turning away from God is the same as turning away to God's enemy. These words actually will become prophetic as we'll see in a moment. Well, Saul said to Samuel in verse 24 of that chapter, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. So for the first time, Saul's saying, I was wrong. I've sinned. But it's not a legitimate repentance. You can read through the lines there and you can see he's, he's, he's laying the blame. I feared the people. The people were really scary. I feared what they might do to me. But he's, he's begging Samuel. To, he's, he's trying to manipulate Samuel to join him and to stand by his side in making these offerings so that he doesn't lose face. You see, he's grieving over his sin, but, but it's not a, a grief that leads to repentance. It's, he's grieving over the consequences of his sin. But he's not grieving over the fact that he's offended a holy and righteous God in sin. So his grief doesn't actually lead to repentance. You know, in uh, verse 11 of that chapter, uh, God is quoted as saying, I regret that I have made Saul king. Don't underestimate the gravity of those words. God says, I underestimate, or I, 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 I regret that I made Saul king. The, the word regret there is also translated as repent. Now, this doesn't mean that God sinned. It doesn't mean that God made a mistake. What the, the editor of 1 Samuel is trying to convey to us is the grief that God is experiencing. God loved his people. And God loved Saul. And God knew what they would do and he would knew that the, the choices that we, he, they would make, but that still grieves the heart of God. But what I want you also to see is that on the part of Saul, the one who's actually sinned, there is no repentance. And the only time the word repent is used is in connection to God, but not in connection to Saul. The next couple of scenes that we would look at are virtually identical, so we'll talk at them as one scene. Uh, it involves David. Um, God um, selects this man after his own heart. 
who will take the scene, who will take the throne after Saul. But God makes it clear, David, it's not his job to remove Saul from the throne. God will remove Saul in his time. But David is actually sent to Saul to serve him. But Saul, in his paranoia, turns on David and tries to kill him. So David goes on the run and spends years in the wilderness hiding out. And on two different instances, God puts Saul into David's hand. The first instance is in a cave. Saul goes in this cave to, to relieve himself, and, and David's hiding in there with his men. Saul doesn't know he's, that he's, that he's there. And then his men say, this is the moment we've been waiting for. This is the time. Reach out. Take, take his life. Become king. Set us free from, from being chased down all the time. And David's response is, I will not lift my hand against God's anointed one. Anointed one. I will not lift my hands against this, this type of Messiah, this type of Christ. He, he's not going to raise his hand against the very throne of God. That's satanic. That's what Satan did. He's not going to do that. Both of these instances, this happens. And, and in both of these instances, Saul conf, or David confronts Saul. And he says, look, God put you in my hand, but I didn't take your life. And in both of those instances, Saul is grieved. Oh, he begins to cry, and he falls down on his face. He says, oh, you're so much more righteous than I am, David. But it's not grief that leads to repentance. It's not grief that leads to change. It's not grief that alters his trajectory. It's just grief that will lead to more grief. So finally, we get to chapter 28. As I said, the last five chapters of, of 1 Samuel, um, there really are sort of pulling apart the story of David and Saul. They've been bound up together. But they get pulled apart in the last five chapters, and it sort of switches back between David and, and Saul. But uh, for, for the sake of understanding, last week we just looked at the end of David's story in 1 Samuel, and this week we're just looking at the end of, of Saul's story. But I want us to notice something this morning, that, that as something is happening to David, it's also happening to Saul. All right, and so as we, as we look at their two trajectories, um, last week we, we talked about David goes up to, to Aphek with the Philistine army, and the Philistine leaders are like, you're not going into battle with us. We don't trust you. You're going to turn on us, and so you go back. And so uh, when David arrives back home in Ziklag, at, at the same time, the Philistines are camping at Shunem. All right? The same time this is happening. Um, at the same time that David's uh, men begin to threaten stoning David. If you'll remember from last week, um, they arrive back home and uh, the, their city has been burned by the Amalekites. Their families have, have been taken away and David's men turn on him and they're threatened to stone him. So at the same time that this is happening, um, Saul is gathering his forces on Gilboa. Gilboa provided um, overlook it provided them uh, with, with an opportunity to see into the Valley of Jezreel, to see the Philistine movements. The problem is, is that when Saul sees the vast number of Philistines, he's terrified. And so at the same time that, that, that Saul is terrified and fearful of this Philistine army is the same time David is being strengthened by the Lord. D David is, is empty, he's got nothing left, and God meets him there and strengthens him at the very same time that every last ounce of strength is leaving Saul. At the same time that David calls for Abiathar. If you'll remember, uh, Saul killed all the priests of God. And only one escaped, Abiathar. And he escapes with the ephod. And, and he escapes with the, the, the Urim. It's this device that, that they would use to, to, to ask God questions. I don't know how that worked. 
But he has the ephod, he has the urim, and he comes to David. So David calls on, on, on Abiathar. At that very moment, Saul is, is not hearing from God. At that very moment, God is, is ignoring Saul. At, at the very same time that, that David is inquiring of God and he's asking God what he should do, Saul is going to inquire of a medium. I want us to see that, that, that God is he's bringing David up at the same time that, that, that Saul is being brought low. David is going to God. Saul is going elsewhere. It says this in chapter 28, verse 6, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. He, he needs God to answer. He needs some control over his situation. He needs to know what's going to happen to him but there's no one there to tell him. Samuel's dead. The line of prophets that, that, that followed him are, are, are dispersed or no more. The priest, he's wiped out. God's not showing up to him in dreams. Like God's not communicating to Saul anymore. But if you look at the, the, the story, if you look at scenario after scenario, God showed up and God, God communicated to Saul through Samuel, through David, even through Jonathan, confronting him on sin, sin and, and guiding him and telling him what to do. And over and over again, he he didn't listen. And so God's done talking. And so he'll go elsewhere. We learned that um, early on in, uh, in Saul's career as king, he, uh, he, he was very uh, religious. Not a very faithful man, but religious. And so he, he had all of the mediums and the necromancers removed from, from the land. There was actually a, a capital punishment for, for anyone found out being a, a medium or a, or a necromancer, somebody who talked to the dead. It was illegal. And it's illegal because uh, Leviticus 20, God says that this is, this is something that should not be. This is, this is a detestable thing to God. It's detestable because God's people are meant to turn to him instead of turning to something else. Uh, well, Saul's able to find a medium. She's an Endor. Um, it's a place on the other side of Shunem. He actually has to go around the Philistine army in order to get to her. He puts himself in, in, in grave risk, great danger to go to a medium. And, and, and to understand what a medium is, a medium is somebody who, who didn't communicate with the dead. That's what they thought. A medium is somebody who communicates with a demon. Saul is going to communicate with Satan's side. It's ironic that this man that, that God loved this man that did, did everything to redeem Saul's past and make him king and establish his presence with him, even giving him his spirit, that this man did not love God in return. And the, 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 the thing that, that the God communicated to the Israelites through Samuel, that, that, that what would happen when you obeyed this king, that this king would take and take and take and take. You know, the reality is, Saul took from himself Saul became the king that he, the, the thing that he worshiped that actually stole everything from him. Till in the end, he calls out to God for help and God does not answer him. So he turns to this, this medium. Um, you know, to, to understand this, you know, we, we look at mediums today and we, we think a lot of times they're flim flam artists or con artists, people who are really good at reading a room or reading people. This is not the case then. Um, these were people who really did communicate with spirits, not the spirits of dead, the dead, but spirits of, of demons. 
who would disguise themselves as dead people in order to lure people away from the truth. This is who this medium is. And so Saul goes to this woman. He asked her to to bring up somebody who has died, and she says this to him in in verse 9. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and necromancers from the land. She doesn't recognize that it's Saul. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? Is this entrapment? Are you trying to get me to do something that that you're going to say, aha, and you're going to kill me for? And here's what what David says, and this, this should floor us. He says this in verse 10. But Saul swore to her by the Lord. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. He is invoking the covenant name of God in order to talk to a demon. Do you understand the gravity of that? Like, do you understand, like, the profanity of that? He's using the covenant name of God in order to turn to God's enemy for answers. Uh, God actually intervenes here. Um, When the woman brings forth what uh, Samuel, she cries out. Uh, The text says she cries out, and the reason she cries out is because she's surprised. She's not used to actually seeing this. She's used to perhaps dealing with a demon who's able to communicate things to her, but she's not used to seeing this. And she realizes that it's Saul, and once again, Saul reassures her. But, but God is intervening in the story, and I want us to understand something. Like, this doesn't happen anywhere else in Scripture, right? And, and this is not to be repeated, just so we're clear. Like, trying to do this, it's not a good idea. Don't do this. But, but God intervenes, and God's gonna bring forth Samuel so that Samuel can once again remind Saul of the truth, and then give him a word of, of, of prophecy. So Samuel appears, he asks why he's being disturbed, and, and Saul knows that it's Samuel, and he begins to speak to him. He says, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Do you hear the whine in his voice? God's left me. God's abandoned me. God doesn't hear me anymore. Do do you you hear any blame put on himself? It's all God's fault. Everything is God's fault. He's whining and complaining about God doesn't listen to me anymore. Samuel's response, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. And here's the word of prophecy. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistines. God is communicating one more time to Saul. You did not obey. You did not obey. One more opportunity to speak to Saul. And because of this, tomorrow you will die along with your sons and along with your whole army. I would argue that if at this moment 
Saul hit his knees and turned to God and repented of his sin, God would have heard him and forgiven him, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he falls face down on the ground, completely at the end of himself, completely hopeless in despair. And then the next thing that we see is sort of strange. The medium comes to him and tries to get him to eat. And he refuses at first, but then she prepares this meal for him. And if you look carefully at this, what this is is there's, there's covenant language that's involved here. There's an agreement that's being formed. There's an alignment that happens between a medium and Saul. Saul is giving himself up completely and for forever to the other side. The next day, Saul meets his end. The arrows find him. He dies bloody and violently on top of a hill surrounded by his enemies. And his sons and his army are destroyed. The following day, the Philistines find his body. They strip him of his armor and they take the armor and they put it in the temple to the Ashtaroth. It's a, it's a trophy for their gods. They take his body, they behead it. His, his body is, is mounted on, on the wall of a city for, for the whole world to see. And his head is, is sent around the kingdom with, with this strange message, good news. The Israelite king is dead. Good news, the king of Israel is dead. The, the, this anointed one of Israel, good news, is dead. What an interesting message. We look at the life of Saul and we look how it is that he ended. And over and over and over again, God confronted him with sin. And over and over and over again, he spoke to him. And over and over again, Saul refused to listen. He understood grief, but it was never a grief that led to repentance. Paul helps us understand this on another level. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes a letter to a church and he addresses the sin that's happening in this church. And, and, and the results, he writes, is a, a, a second letter. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 8, and 9, we read this. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. He, he wrote this letter of confrontation. You know, it's difficult to confront people in their sin. But he does, and he con confronts them in their sin, and they have one or two options. They can, he can either address their, the, the, the confrontation of their sin, they can address that sin with worldly grief or with godly grief. He goes on and says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. He, he describes worldly grief a little bit more. He says, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. There's a godly grief that leads to repentance. There is a worldly grief that leads to self-justification. It, it leads to blame shifting. There's a worldly grief that leads you to, to, to not embrace what you have done to a holy and righteous God. 
Worldly grief leads to death. This is what Saul had. This is what Saul had. I want us to move into a time of response now. In a moment, we're going to sing. But we're also going to take communion together this morning. I'll remind you, uh, the way that we did it a couple of weeks ago, we'll do it again the same way. Take your time. Uh, we'll be singing two songs together. There's no hurry. But when you're ready, get up from where you are. Come and grab the elements that are down front and go down the outside aisles back to your seat. But when you do that, I want to ask you to, to, to deal with God and, and, and address two questions. Earlier on, I, I asked um, that, that, that God would reveal the things that are in our heart to show a, a, us if there's anything in us that we needed to, to address. And so there's two questions that I want you to deal with as you sit there with God before you take those elements. And the first one is this. Am I grieved over my sin? First of all, th- this sort of takes into account that you believe that you have sinned. And if you're sitting there this morning and you would say, I haven't sinned, then take a step back and ask again. But, but for those of you who would look at your life and you recognize in the ways through your actions and your words, through your motives, through, through acts of commission or, or omission, that you have sinned against a holy and righteous God and you have sinned against his image bearers. Are you grieved over that sin? Are you grieved over it? And you could be grieved in two ways. You could be grieved because of the consequences of it. You could be grieved because it broke a relationship or it's some, it hurt you in some way or maybe there was a financial loss attached to it or, or something that happened that, that, that you lament, you wish that didn't happen. Are you, are you grieved over that? And, and so that's the second question. Am I grieved to repentance with godly grief or am I grieved to more sin, worldly grief? How are you grieved over that? And then when you're ready, repent. You see, I talked earlier about the, the fact that, that, that this grief, it, it really corresponds to love. It corresponds to love. Look, if you look at what Jesus has done for you, if, if you look at the cross and you see the great love with, which with God has loved you, and you don't love in response to that, then, then you'll have, you might have guilt or shame over what you've done, but you're not gonna have godly grief that leads to repentance. Let me remind you of the gospel before we partake. The Son of God takes on flesh and he comes and he lives a holy, righteous, sinless life. He never disobeys God. He never rebels against the Father. He comes and he brings this life to us and he lives it on our behalf to offer it as a sacrifice on our behalf. The night before he's killed, he's face down in the garden and he's, he's sweating great drops of blood because of the amount of grief he is experiencing over this. And he's asking the Lord, will you take this cup from me? In the same silence that Saul felt, Jesus, the Son of God, felt. And he gets up, and he goes to the cross. And he allows himself to be hung up for the world to see. Stripped naked in shame and guilt before the world. And in those moments, he calls out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As God the Father turns on him like he's his enemy and all the wrath of God towards your sin and my sin is poured out on Jesus. And he absorbs that in our place. 
good news. The king dies. Why? Because he loves us. Because he loved us. God so loved us that he gave his one and only son. This is good news for us. We get to find reconciliation with God, but, but you need to look at the cross and you see the love of God poured out for you and, and do you experience the love in return for him? Do you love him back for what he's done? Or do you, like Saul, just want to use God for what you can get out of him? Are you grieved by your sin? Is it a sin or a grief that leads to, to is it godly grief that leads to repentance? I'm gonna uh, pray. The band is gonna come up and play. And the communion tables are open. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will deal with us honestly, as you always do. I pray that you would bring uh, to our hearts and to our minds the ways that we have offended you. Father, against you and you alone have we sinned. You have loved us with a love unimaginable. You demonstrated that love. And while we were yet sinners, your son died for us. Father, I pray for those of us who this morning we, we know what you've done and yet even now we feel apathetic towards it. I pray that you would um, just draw us close to your heart. I pray that you would overwhelm us with your love. Confront us with your love. Remind us, speak to us by your spirit deeply of how great your love for us is. Lead us to a place where you speak tenderly to us. And I pray that we would crack open pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.